And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm happy you could join us. Not so long ago, very few elected officials would risk political capital supporting cannabis policy reform, even when confronted with the truth that prohibition was predicated on a deception that led to the mass incarceration of cannabis users. So deep was the stigma cemented in the American psyche that most lawmakers refused to even entertain a debate on the taboo issue. But thanks to the persistent activism over the last several decades, public demand for legalization has grown to the point that lawmakers who don't support it risk losing re-election. And rightly so. States now regulating cannabis have experienced economic growth, less crime, and fewer opiate fatalities. They're also enabling patients to explore cannabis therapy without the threat of prosecution. With indisputable evidence that cannabis is harmless and in fact saving lives, it has no business being in Schedule 1 alongside dangerous controlled substances like heroin, meth, and LSD. So why hasn't it been repealed? The arcane federal policy has caused more harm than good, especially among the minority communities most frequently targeted by law enforcement. It's destroyed the families of millions of incarcerated marijuana offenders and perpetuated the insidious cycle of incarceration and economic hardship when convicts are stripped of voting rights and barred from securing housing and gainful employment. Even though cannabis is legal in more than half of the United States, Law enforcement agencies are still prosecuting marijuana charges, and thousands of offenders are still incarcerated. And for what? Prohibition has failed to deter marijuana use, and yet billions of tax dollars have been spent enforcing marijuana policy and enriching private prisons who incarcerate the marijuana convicts. With the exception of the prison lobby and a handful of special interests, and, of course, the elected officials who rely on their campaign contributions, no one benefits from locking up marijuana users. Whether for political expediency or financial gain, the ongoing enforcement of a destructive, ill-conceived policy amounts to nothing more than an egregious miscarriage of justice. Lawmakers are not blind to the truth, and more importantly, they know we know the truth. And with that knowledge comes a moral obligation to do the right thing. If our elected officials won't fight for justice, they'll hear from activists like Steve D'Angelo, who has said he'll never stop fighting until the last marijuana prisoner is released. That's the topic of today's show, and I'm excited to say that he's here with attorney Sarah Gersten to talk about their fight for justice under their new organization, The Last Prisoner Project. I'll bring them in momentarily, but first, I wanted to get an update about the Cannabis Science Conference with the event's founder, Josh Krosny. Welcome, Josh. Tell me, what's going on? 
So I'm really excited to announce that we have Olivia Newton-John and her husband, Amazon John Easterling, that'll be joining us as our plenary speakers at the show. And they'll discuss their journey of using plant medicine. And they'll talk about how they've used that in treating cancer in their session. That's exciting, Josh. That's going to be an amazing talk. She's been an incredible advocate for such a long time. But you also have the Cannabis Boot Camp coming up again. Tell us a little bit about that. So yeah, so our boot camp, which is a really, really popular uh, event, that's our pre-conference workshop that covers many aspects of the industry in a hands-on kind of workshop full day. And it covers topics like cultivation, sample preparation, analytical testing for quality control, um, extraction, and a lot of other fun topics. So that's, like I said, a really great hands-on learning experience. And that's the day before the conference on September 4th. Uh, And that'll be held at a Oregon hemp farm as well as a Oregon winery. So we'll kind of split up between those locations. First attendees will go to the hemp farm and they'll get to do a tour of that and see how things work on on a farm in that aspect. And then they'll move over to the winery where we'll host our educational sessions that range into more analytical topics like testing and sample preparation and um, things like that. So we're really excited about that. This event does sell out every year. Uh, We were full on the boot camp already, but we were able to add uh, one more bus and create rooms for some more people because like I said, it's really popular. So um, we were able to add about 20 tickets to that and we're down to about nine more. So anyone that's interested in that, I would definitely encourage them uh, to on that that wagon sooner than later. Well, as always, it's going to be an amazing event. And I know it's going to be a huge success as usual. So if anybody will be up in the Portland area, I definitely recommend checking out the Cannabis Science Conference. And if you're not in Portland, it's definitely worth a trip. It's by far the most comprehensive scientific cannabis conference in the nation. So thanks again, Josh. I look forward to hearing another update next week. That sounds great, Sven. Talk to you then. Uh, So let's get started. I am really excited to introduce Steve D'Angelo and Sarah Gersten. And I've been looking forward to talking to them about the Last Prisoner Project, which is a very worthy cause. So I'll start out by telling you a little bit about Sarah. She's a Harvard-educated transactional attorney and founding partner at Gersten Saltman, where she specializes in intellectual property. She has also specialized in legislative policy, regulations, and international trade at a congressional agency and served as an associate at KNL Gates, where she assisted public and private companies in initial and secondary public offerings. As executive director and general counsel of The Last Prisoner Project, she's working with Steve D'Angelo to help repair the harms caused by the criminalization of cannabis through restorative justice efforts. And that leads me to Steve D'Angelo. As I mentioned, he's the founder of The Last Prisoner Project and happens to be one of the most prolific trailblazers in the cannabis industry. With four decades of activism and advocacy for the legalization of cannabis, Steve has become known as the father of the cannabis reform movement. Having focused his career on the intersection of advocacy and entrepreneurship, he's created numerous profitable ventures that simultaneously advance social goals. As co-founder of Harborside in Oakland, California, he established one of the very first six cannabis dispensaries ever licensed in the United States, which modeled the gold standard for scalable cannabis retail and cultivation operations. He has also pioneered a number of other iconic businesses like Steeple Hill Laboratories, the first lab dedicated to cannabis testing, and the Arcview Group, the first all-cannabis investment firm 
as well as a number of other successful first-of-a-kind ventures. As founder of The Last Prisoner Project, he's focused on securing the release of thousands of prisoners that are still incarcerated for marijuana-related offenses and helping ex-convicts expunge their records so that they can resume productive lives. Steve and Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, thanks for having us, Snowden. Great, great to be here with you. I'd like to start with you, Steve, because you've been called the father of the cannabis movement, a true pioneer in this industry in terms of moving it forward with public awareness. Just so that our audience is really aware of where you're coming from, can you tell me how you first became interested in advocating for cannabis? Sure. Um, I, my, my cannabis advocacy came directly out of my earliest experience with cannabis, uh, which was when I was 13 years old. And uh, um, long story short, I, I had a very, very profound experience with cannabis. Looking backwards, um, I, I consider it my first real genuine spiritual experience. And I, I came out of that experience um, uh, knowing that cannabis was going to continue to play a role in my life. And as soon as I realized that, um, I also realized that I was not willing to be a criminal the rest of my life. And so legalizing cannabis, telling the truth about cannabis became a prerequisite for my own personal happiness. And, and I made it my mission. You know what? So many people gravitate toward cannabis for that very reason. And it's always seemed absurd to me that it was illegal. But when I started learning about it, I had absolutely zero idea that prohibition was based on lies. And the Controlled Substances Act, of course, you know, it had a lot of racial implications and it was a way of controlling certain population groups. When the Controlled Substances Act passed, what was it like back then? Because I know you were around during that era and you were probably quite stunned when it happened. Yeah, well, um, you know, the, the story of what happened with the Controlled Substances Act is really interesting. Um, at the time that the act was pending before Congress, and this is, this is 1970, um, uh, Nixon is president of the United States. And uh, we, we were seeing just the beginnings of a cannabis reform movement. And, um, and so when the measure was being debated, the Controlled Substances Act was being debated in Congress, we had enough of an activist presence there uh, that we were able to push back when the prohibitionists uh, uh, wanted to put cannabis into Schedule One. And what happened, uh, and few people know this this story, is that uh, as a result of the efforts that were made by by the pro cannabis uh, advocates at that time, cannabis was only temporarily quote unquote placed into Schedule One. And a blue ribbon presidential commission was impaneled, the Schaefer Commission. It was headed up by Governor Raymond Schaefer of Pennsylvania, who was a center-right former prosecutor. And the whole panel was composed of guys, mostly guys, like Schaefer. But uh, to Nixon's surprise, uh, they actually did an objective and scientific analysis of cannabis. And, and just like everybody else who has taken an objective and scientific look at cannabis, uh, uh, came back uh, understanding that, that all of the myths that they had been hearing uh, were wrong. And the recommendation of the Schaefer Commission was that cannabis did not belong in Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 or Schedule 3 or 4 or 5. 
they recommended that cannabis re be removed entirely from the Controlled Substances Act and that its nonprofit uh, transfer between adults be decriminalized. But um, Nixon wanted to continue using cannabis prohibition as a club against the people of color, against hippies, against the anti-war movement. Um, and so he just uh, trashed the report. He suppressed it. Congress never get it, got it. And as a result, um, they've never had an opportunity to go back and, um, and, and revisit the Schedule One classification. You know, that's criminal in and of itself, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and you know, um, you know I, I just tweeted out uh, this morning um, uh, uh, this idea that, you know, you, you think about, about people who have been arrested for cannabis during the years of prohibition. And the, the system would have us believe that, that, that these folks are criminals, that they did something wrong, that they did something harmful to society. And even though we're changing the laws now, that they should stay in. And, and I take completely the opposite view, right? Uh, the people who carried this plan through the long, dark years of prohibition, who brought it to people who needed it, who took the risks, uh, big, big risks, and often paid heavy, heavy prices for it, were not criminals. They were heroes. And, and, and that's one reason uh, that I'm so passionately committed to the idea uh, of, uh, of getting them released. And that leads me to the last prisoner project, because there are astonishing figures about how many people are still incarcerated, how many people over time have been incarcerated. And you figure for every person that has been incarcerated for a harmless plant, you've got an entire family that has suffered either financially or socially, or they've just been thwarted. And when these people are released, they can't vote. They can't, well, in some states anyway, they can't vote and they can't get jobs. I mean, this has really had a dramatic impact. So Sarah, tell me just a little bit about the Last Prisoner Project. Yeah, so I think you've really hit on the impetus for the project. And as Steve mentioned, I think it comes both from recognizing this problem, this disparity between the way a majority of Americans feel about marijuana and its legalization and the way a majority of states have now either legalized in some form or decriminalized the plant and the fact that we still have tens of thousands of Americans incarcerated for cannabis-related crimes. Um, and on the other hand, you have those in the industry who are disproportionately white men building intergenerational wealth. Um, and that's something we discuss a lot is this idea of those who are able to build millions and billions of dollars in this industry and what they are able to do for their families, for their future, juxtaposed with exactly what you just discussed, which is the intergenerational harm that is occurring to those people, largely people of color, who are incarcerated or even who just have an arrest a cannabis-related arrest on their record, the effect that that has on not only the individual, but their family, their friends, their community. Um, and so Steve, being in the position that he's in and having been able to create wealth in this industry, really recognized that disparity. And so he teamed up with his brother, Andrew, and our other co-founder, Dean Rays, 
to do something about this and to really show the industry and those leaders and those executives in the now legal cannabis industry, you know, the hypocrisy of building that wealth, but yet not doing anything for those victims of the war on drugs, those victims of the criminalization of cannabis who are still incarcerated or who are still feeling the effects of being criminalized for their use of cannabis. So that was really the impetus for the project. And let me understand too, are you also addressing the diversity in the industry, number one, but number two, does your advocacy go into sort of the political arena regarding private prisons? Because they have profited grossly on the incarceration of drug convicts. Absolutely. You're exactly right. Um, And, you know, what we have spent the past six months doing in the lead up to the official launch of the project, which is coming in September, is a really robust uh, impact and needs assessment and analysis of the nonprofit and advocacy groups working either in criminal justice reform, sentencing reform, um, drug policy, etc., and finding where we felt we could be most impactful and doing while aligning, obviously, with Steve's original mission for this project. And so our core focus as a project is on clemency and reentry work. So that goes to both actually commuting someone's sentence who's currently incarcerated, actually getting them out of prison. It goes to resentencing and retrial efforts for those who are dealing with an unjust um, sentence or conviction. And then the final piece of that, of course, is that once someone is released from incarceration, the work does not stop at release. That's, in fact, really the first step um, with our work we don't give our clients, our constituents, the resources and the support to rebuild their lives post-release, we know what the outcome is going to be. The recidivism rates in this country are incredibly high, and that's because our government, uh, our communities have not set up the infrastructure to support people when they are released from incarceration. And in fact, we simply set up barriers And this is particularly true in the context of someone who uses cannabis, um, often, you know, sometimes recreationally, but often medically. We have lots of clients who have proven medical needs to use cannabis, yet when they're released, their probation keeps them from using cannabis. Um, And so that's just one example of the barriers we put in place to help people people to rebuild their lives um, after being released. So through our reentry program, what we're doing is not only helping to give employment opportunities to those that have been affected by cannabis convictions, but we're also helping beyond employment to work to give them the support that they need that comes through access to mental health, restoration of voting rights, immigration support, if that's something our constituents need, but ensuring that our reentry program provides 360 support for our clients when they are leaving incarceration. And so what those programs 
hopefully are allowing us to do is to go to that need that you addressed, which is diversity in workforce development in the cannabis industry. Um, We are currently not seeing a really well-represented workforce um, within cannabis. And so this program is really devoted to increasing the numbers, not only of people of color within the industry, but of those people who have actually themselves experienced uh, a conviction or incarceration because of cannabis use. So are you also going to like state and local governments to implore them to allow convicted drug offenders to work in the industry? Because I know like, for example, here in Arizona, where I am, the medical marijuana law prohibits convicts from working in the industry. Absolutely. And right now, cannabis companies across the country are spending millions of dollars on lobbying efforts to support legalization. What our movement and this project is trying to do is to implore the industry and their lobbyists that whenever we're going to a state or local government and lobbying for legalization, that those lobbying efforts have to include not only provisions that will provide for retroactive relief, such as expungement, such as pardon programs for people who have been incarcerated, but also to address this need for equity within the industry. And Arizona is not the only state by far that prohibits those people who have been disproportionately impacted by the criminalization of cannabis from entering the industry, which is, again, one of these disparities that is simply nonsensical um, when so many states say that they are trying to increase equity and they're trying to give back to those communities who have been disproportionately impacted. So that's absolutely something that we work with industry groups and lobbyists to ensure that when they're using those dollars to lobby for increased legalization, that those measures that will also address equity in the industry and restorative justice have to be an equal part of those efforts. And Steve, as an entrepreneur and um, someone who's had a great deal of success in this industry so far, Do you find that your industry peers are amenable to opening their doors to people who have records or or people of color to increase the diversity in the industry? Well, overall, uh, I've been really heartened by the response that The Last Prisoner Project has received from the legal cannabis industry. Um, just about everybody that we have offered an opportunity to support us to has taken advantage of that opportunity. Um, we um, haven't gotten to the stage of implementing a lot of our plans. We're really in the process of, of firming up our plans and getting them rolled out. So we don't really know how this thing is going to unfold. We're hearing great things from the legal cannabis industry right now. When, and, and we will just need to see over the course of time how well the, the the good things that we're hearing from the industry are translated into action. Well, that's great to hear that, you know, the industry seems to be on board with this. I've spoken with some other people who are also uh, pushing diversity initiatives in the industry, and it seems that they're having some success bringing people on board who have been disadvantaged by the criminal justice system. So, 
How do you suspect that the new Criminal Justice Act is going to impact the work that you're doing, Steve? Are you familiar with it? I'm not, but Sarah probably is. Sarah, how do you feel about the recent legislation that was passed to reform the criminal justice system? I mean, you're a former prosecutor, correct? I'm not. I'm a former attorney for a congressional agency, but uh, I can speak to the First Step Act and, you know, kind of the gaps. Um, And while it's certainly a step in the right direction uh, and does a lot for a lot of people who have been unjustly incarcerated. One of the groups that it really leaves out, oddly enough, is cannabis offenders. Um, There was a lot of focus in the First Step Act on uh, certain drug offenders. It it went a lot to the disparities between um, sentencing for crack versus cocaine, for instance. Um, But unfortunately, with the number of clemencies that were a product of the First Step Act and some of the clemency petitions that this administration has passed through, I think something like only 30 of those were cannabis offenders. So this is a group that unfortunately has largely been left out of recent criminal justice reform efforts. Yeah, see, I was a bit disappointed by that. When this this current administration started, I mean, there was a lot of panic going on because of the position of the Justice Department. And I have no idea how the new attorney general really feels about cannabis reform. But I know that it felt as though there were going to be a lot of roadblocks when Jeff Sessions took control of the Justice Department. How do you feel that this administration now is faring in terms of supporting the industry? Do you feel like there are roadblocks still? Look, there's all kinds of roadblocks. Uh, I think that, you know, that I would characterize the the current position um, of the of the Trump administration as not quite benign neglect. Um, so what do I mean by that? Uh, you know, what we saw even when Sessions was still the attorney general is that, is that the Trump administration does not seem to be willing to spend political capital on a frontal attack towards the, towards, to the cannabis industry. Uh, on the other hand, they don't seem to be willing to, um, political risks on behalf of the industry either. And, you know, this is, is, is really evident when you, when you take a look at the, you know, the, the, the difference between the way legislation is, is faring in the House and the way that it's faring in the Senate. Um, and, you know, the, the Trump administration has an opportunity here, and I think one that they should take advantage of, um, because uh, in some of the states where they most need to, to win voters um, uh, in, the, in the upcoming election, uh, there will be or there could be uh, cannabis initiatives on the ballot. And I think that if, if they were really um, using a smart political uh, calculus here, uh, Trump would, would get ahead of the wave of reform. You know, not many people uh, know this, but uh, Trump, with one phone call, one phone call to the administrator of the Drug Enforcement Administration, could have cannabis removed from the Controlled Substances Act. Um, the act authorizes the administrator of the DEA uh, to take such actions. 
and uh, and the president is the boss of the DEA administrator. So um, what I hope is going on in the Trump administration is is that they are now um, uh, seriously considering moving from from this policy of 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 not really supporting but not really opposing to to one of active support. I think it would be the smart political thing for them to do. It's certainly the right thing to do. Absolutely, it would. At least it sounds like it. And you know the the racial undertones of policymaking in this administration has also been a bit concerning, especially when it comes to thinking about the racial disparities in the cannabis incarceration merry-go-round, if you will. And you know, it, how much of a challenge is is it going to be with that in mind? pushing the agenda of the Last Prisoner Project. Sarah, why don't you take that one? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, part of what we did before we started this project was to figure out where we could have the most impact. And there are currently several advocacy groups that work on the federal level in terms of lobbying. There's a lot of groups and a lot of attorneys who have worked to file petitions for clemency for those federal prisoners um, to the Trump administration. And so there wasn't quite as much of a need on the federal level. And as you articulated, it's not exactly a clean advocacy avenue to wade into. So what we are doing with the Last Prisoner Project and our clemency program is focusing on the state level, while of course continuing to support those groups who are lobbying and advocating at the federal level for federal cannabis prisoners. But what we're doing is working with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, NACDL, um, and working with them to implement a program uh, based on a prior program that they worked on um, on the state level in New York. And what that does is it works with state executive offices, governor's offices, to create a category of clemency for certain low-level cannabis offenders um, who are still incarcerated. And by working with those executive offices, what we can do is rather than trying to process each petition on a case-by-case basis, we can work with those executive offices to advocate again for clemency for a category of offenders. So enabling us to process thousands of clemency petitions um, in those states that we determine are most viable, whose executives will be most amenable to that type of category of clemency. So what we're doing right now is that viability analysis. Working with NACDL, working with law firms that have come on to support the project to figure out which governors would be most willing to enact a category of clemency for those cannabis offenders on the state level. And how many governors so far? Well, right now we're looking at four states whose governors have signaled a willingness to enact this type of program. Um, That would be 
Washington, Governor Inslee, um, Michigan's newly elected governor has signaled a willingness to do something similar, um, as has Illinois under their new recreational bill. Um, And then California uh, and to a certain extent New York um, are the other states that we are working with. Um, NACDL has worked with Cuomo's office on their prior state clemency initiative in New York. Um, So that's another state that we are hoping to make inroads in. Now, have you also approached candidates who are running for governor in various states to add this to their platform pitch for election? Steve, do you want to talk about um, the communications you've had with um, the Gabbard campaign? Yeah, um, uh, you know, we... We, um, I, I think really, you know, more in my personal level, um, as opposed to any official LPP capacity, I, I've um, been reaching out um, and just having, you know, opening some lines of communication uh, with different presidential campaigns, um, uh, Senate campaigns. Um, and, um, you know, we, um, uh, we are, just in the process of, of, of really gearing up. Um, right now we've got uh, Mary and Sarah, uh, our, our two uh, full-time staff people who are, who are really just beginning to gear up. So um, uh, I wish I could tell you that we've been in touch with every single campaign out there, but some of that is still on our punch list of, of to-do things. And have you noticed a, a difference in attitude toward this between uh parties? Like, for instance, are you able to find that some of the Republican candidates and or people in office already are as amenable to this as Democratic candidates? Or do you feel that there's still a bit of a partisan inclination toward the left in favor of cannabis reform like this? No, I mean, I think that you're seeing a, a, a real shift in red states. Um, you just take a look at what happened in the uh, last general election cycle, um, where uh, we won initiatives in North Dakota, in uh, Arkansas, in Florida, all all really deeply red states. Now, what we do tend to find uh, with Democrats and Republicans alike is that the voters tend to be quite a bit ahead of the curve relative to their elected representatives. Um, but uh, some of our strongest supporters have been Republicans. Dana Rohrabacher, uh, Rand Paul, um, uh, Tom McClintock, um, all um, you know, very uh, strong Republicans, um, uh, but also very strong supporters of, of cannabis reform. So uh, I think there's also just a generational uh, change which is in place. I think that um, that if you look at the the older leadership of both parties, that you find folks like um, you know on 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 the Democratic side, um, uh, you have the Diane Feinstein's of the world, um, and on the Republican side, you still have. Um, uh, 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 people like uh, Mitch McConnell, right, who, uh, even though he took a favorable position on hemp, uh, continues to blockade any kind of uh, pro-cannabis reform measures from hitting the floor of the Senate. So I think that in general, um, the, the younger uh, politicians who understand that this is a critical issue that re- voters are going to remember for the rest of their lives 
how a politician uh, votes on this issue. Um, younger uh, uh, folks who are just starting their political careers um, almost universally, no matter what party they're in, uh, are are in favor of of cannabis reform, and I think um, that uh, that that's something that's just going to continue to grow in force and scope as time goes on. Yeah, I I think the statistics now are uh, gosh, I think like seventy nine percent was the last I heard. Voters are in favor of cannabis regulation for adult and medical use and like in almost 90 or something. I mean, you might know the statistics better than I do, but it seems like there's an overwhelming majority of Americans who favor regulation of cannabis because the prohibition just simply has not worked, clearly. <laughs> but what's in the future for LPP? I know you've got some benchmarks that you're trying to reach right now. Sarah, do you want to take that or Steve? Either one. Go ahead, Sarah. So we are still in the early phases. We're actually still pre-launch until September. So we're really focusing our efforts this summer and into the fall on fundraising. We've spent the past few months setting up uh, some really exciting initiatives and programs, as I mentioned, and figuring out, you know, what it's going to take in terms of resources for us to support those initiatives. And so we started our fundraising campaign uh, with a fundraiser in LA earlier this summer, um, kind of convening a lot of the industry participants that we would like to support this project. Um, and it was really well received. So what we're doing over the next three to four months is replicating that uh, in cities across the country. We'll be in Austin in September, in New York in October, San Francisco in October, uh, Denver a little bit later in the year. So fundraising through those kind of in-person events, uh, as well as online, when we launch in September, we'll be putting up uh, a GoFundMe type campaign. Um, and all of that money is going to be going towards implementing the cannabis clemency program that I described as well as our reentry program. Um, again, working to get employment opportunities within the industry for those who have been impacted by the criminalization of cannabis, but also assisting them in really uh, rebuilding their lives in every aspect of that. Um, and so our efforts really currently uh, are fundraising so that we can actually implement these initiatives. And the hope is that uh, come 2020, early, early 2020, we will be launching both of those programs. And the exciting thing I think about these programs is they're quite innovative. Again, we, we really didn't want to replicate something that another group was already doing, um, but we really wanted to address a need that we felt wasn't being addressed. And so the money we're currently raising, you know, will obviously go to supporting setting up both of these initiatives um, that I think will be replicable across the country once we have kind of launched these pilot programs. As I stated, you know, we're currently doing a viability analysis for the clemency program. We'll be launching our pilot reentry program just out of L.A., but really with the goal that this can not only become something that 
we replicate across the country, but something that we bring globally. Uh, I was so heartened. We did a, a soft social media launch last week. And from the beginning, Steve, as well as uh, two of our advisors, Stephen and Damian Marley, have always had the part of this mission that LPP be global, that we expand this mission to touch countries beyond the U.S. And I was really excited to see that we were already getting support um, and attorneys and advocates from Jamaica, the UK, Ghana, uh, wanting to figure out how we can do that. So while our you know, pilot programs will be in the US, the goal is that that funding will help us to bring these programs uh, to countries across the globe. Well, you know what? I think that the United Nations, they released a report last year about recommendations for drug policy reform moving forward and descheduling or decriminalizing marijuana specifically as well with an entire feasibility study of how that would look and how it would interact with the treaties that have been in place, which were mostly initiated by the United States, with the exception of a couple of international policies that were set in place before the Controlled Substances Act took place. So that must be really helpful toward that international goal. And have you engaged with the United Nations Commission on Drug Policy Reform? Well, it's certainly a helpful document, I think, and it's a helpful policy for the UN to have for nations when considering legalization uh, on a national scale. But unfortunately, we're encountering the same problems that we found in a lot of U.S. states, that even if a country decriminalizes or even legalizes cannabis, Um, we're still finding people, unfortunately, largely people of color, again, uh, being arrested or incarcerated for marijuana-related offenses. So even in those countries where they've kind of recognized why it is good policy to legalize or decriminalize, sometimes we have that same issue, which, again, we're seeing in a lot of legal U.S. states, where it's not always trickling down uh, in terms of enforcement. So again, that will be us, you know, working with local advocates and local law enforcement and local lawmakers to ensure that when we are legalizing, we're also putting in place measures for both retroactive and proactive uh, restorative justice. You know, when you think about countries like Singapore, which has such a strict drug policy. I mean, teenagers coming to the United States and testing positive for marijuana in their system have been executed. In the Philippines, the citizens have basically been given free license to go and shoot people who are in the drug trade. I mean, there's there's so much injustice in, in some countries that have zero tolerance policies for any drugs whatsoever. And I just wonder, you know, how difficult it will be after, it's inevitable that the United States is going to legalize cannabis. It's just a matter of when, not if. So I imagine that there are going to be a lot of countries around the world that will follow suit. But I'm always curious as to how we're going to deal with countries like Singapore and the Philippines who have zero tolerance policies 
and I mean, it's it's an incredible it's an incredible problem. I would think. What do you think of that, Snowden? Um, uh, there's there isn't now, and there never has been any doubt in my mind that cannabis is one day going to be legal everywhere on the planet. The plant is simply too valuable, especially uh, for the needs that our world has today, for that not to happen. And, and as cannabis becomes legal, um, uh, it then becomes possible to, to get prisoners out. And, uh, and, and that's why we are committed uh, to staying on this mission until the very last cannabis prisoner walks out of their cell wherever that is on this planet. And you know, what I've seen in my lifetime is, is that when I started doing this work 45 years ago, uh, people just, just wrote us off as cranks, as, as, as lunatics, really, as being completely crazy to, to think about it. And over the course of decades, um, I've, I've seen the pace of reform, with a couple of exceptions, steadily accelerate over the years. And, uh, you know, what was barely imaginable a few years ago is, is now, you know, happening today. And that pace is going to continue to accelerate. So um, uh, I don't think that, uh, that it's, it, it's far-fetched to, to imagine that, you know, maybe not within my lifetime, but certainly within Sarah's lifetime, the goal that we've set for this organization uh, can be reached. And, and, you know, we, we see that the, that as the truth about cannabis, uh, spreads, um, it also starts to spread more rapidly. So, um, wherever there's somebody sitting in a cell today, uh, they and their families should know uh, that we're coming. It may take us a while, but we're coming. Yeah. I, God bless you. (laughs) This policy has caused so much suffering, and it's about time. So I'm looking forward to that day when the last prisoner incarcerated for marijuana is released. And what about other drugs? I mean, I know you're just starting this, and it's focused on marijuana incarceration. But what about the other drugs that really shouldn't amount to criminal penalties. They should be addressing addiction for the opiate epidemic, for example, and the disparity, of course, between crack and cocaine has sort of been addressed already. But do you anticipate that eventually LPP will start to advocate for the release of prisoners arrested for other drug crimes? You know that's that's not really within the scope of the of the LPP mission. Um, you know, on a personal level, you know, my belief is that is that cannabis uh, opens the doorway to a whole world of plant-based medicine, uh, both visionary plants and therapeutic plants. Um, but the mission of the LPP is purposely narrow, pointed like an arrow. Right? There's one thing that we want to make happen, and we're going to put all of our energy into doing that. And that's making sure that the very last cannabis prisoner walks out of their cell. After that, we can start thinking about other things. But until that goal is achieved, we're going to we're going to to stay on it relentlessly. Well, that in and of itself is a very ambitious goal, and certainly 
uh, worthy of support. Do you have corporate sponsors? We, um, Sarah can give you an, uh, more of an update of where we are on that. But, um, you know, I'm proud to say that the very first corporate uh, donor to the last prisoner project was Harborside Incorporated. And, uh, and we've received uh, donations uh, from uh, numerous other cannabis corporations. Uh, and um, I think that, that we uh, are in conversation now with at least one cannabis corporation about uh, some ongoing program work. Sarah, what do you have to add to that? Yeah, so we're we're certainly in discussions with a lot of cannabis industry participants about being a donor, being a sustainable donor. But some of our earliest supporters, uh, as Steve mentioned, obviously Harborside, Ocean Grown Extracts, which is Jamie and Marley's uh, manufacturing facility, Canacraft, Harvest, and I don't want to be leaving anyone out, but that, so I won't say that that is inclusive, but that is a sampling of some of our uh, earliest supporters. Well, anybody who's donating to your project deserves kudos, and I'd love it if you'd keep us updated on, on your sponsors, and we'll get that out in our social media. Cause I think it's so important to recognize those who are stepping up for this project. And what is the official launch date? Mid-September, I don't know that we have an exact date, but it's to lead up to National Expungement Week, which is September 21st to the 28th, I believe. Yes. I'm excited for you. I really am. And I'm excited to get the word out about this. And I really appreciate your time today. So, Sarah, is there anything else for our audiences to know about what you're doing? Well, one thing I I just wanted to add on to your earlier point kind of about making this project global, having a global focus. Um, and, you know, as an attorney, I am oftentimes very pessimistic and skeptical, and I've seen how difficult this type of reform has been you know, even in the U.S., even in very democratic states. So I have a tendency to be kind of skeptical about the feasibility of this. But I just wanted to bring up one sort of case to highlight the hope, the the room for optimism with this project. Um, And that was actually in Malaysia, which I think is one of those countries that we would think there wouldn't be a lot of opportunity for this type of reform to happen. Um, But it was actually a case involving medical marijuana where actually uh, a woman was sentenced to death for her use of medical cannabis. And that case sparked national outrage. It brought about the people of Malaysia to fight against what they saw as a clearly unjust law. Um, And not only were they able to reverse the sentencing outcome in that case, but it actually led to the Malaysian government uh, outlawing the death sentence in that country. So that's a case I often look to to show the power of grassroots organizing, of individuals coming together to support a collective action, a collective movement, And Steve has been a part of that collective action in America around cannabis reform and legalization 
and bringing criminal justice reform to this mission uh, for decades. And I think we've really seen the power of individuals to make change with this movement. And I think right now, 2019, the lead up to this election, you know, we discussed a little bit how, you know, the current Democratic candidates for president, uh, you know, I was not surprised because it is kind of this hot topic right now, um, politically and within the public conscience. But to hear, I think, multiple candidates in the last Democratic debate bring up not just the idea of cannabis legalization, but of restorative justice within cannabis legalization, I think shows you that this is the time uh, for this movement and that we will have support not only from the public, but from the lawmakers who are going to be able to enact change, um, both at the state and federal level. So all that to say that despite a long road and a dark history in terms of our country and globally, what we've done in terms of criminalizing this plant, I really do think we're at a moment where we're kind of seeing the light uh, at the end of the tunnel. And it's just now we have the space for organizations like ours to step up and ensure that that change happens and that it happens in a way that can best support those communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs and the criminalization of cannabis. Wow, I did not know that about Malaysia. And thank you for sharing that. That's really heartening. You're right. So, Steve, I know you need to go. But tell me, is there anything else that you have a burning desire for our audiences to know about what you're doing? Snowden, uh, this is something that, that the cannabis community collectively can get done. It, it's not a, a unambitious goal. Um, it's, it's a big goal. Um, it's not going to be easy, but it's something that we can all do, and it's something that we should do. So um, I hope that uh, that everybody who's listening will go to the Last Prisoner Project website, uh, will join our mailing list, will come to our fundraisers, and, uh, and work together to, to bring all of our sisters and brothers home. Thank you, Steve. And yeah, I'm so excited about your project. And, you know, we'd be happy to help you to promote this at any time. So please feel free to send me any articles or updates that you have, and I'll make sure that I get that out. We've got a pretty sizable network and it's an open door policy. So please keep that in mind. Thanks for all the support. We really appreciate it, Snowden. Yeah, well, we're happy to do it. So thanks again, Steve. And Sarah, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, Snowden. My pleasure. (laughs) Oh, the time went by so fast, but it is time to bring yet another episode to a close. Once again, I'd like to personally thank my guests, Steve D'Angelo and Sarah Gersten for sharing their insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that they're doing at The Last Prisoner Project, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com, click podcast to find today's episode, and there you will find their bios along with information about the organization and a link to their website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Canisphere Biotech, 
we certainly wouldn't want to be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank our theme song composer, Eric Dahl and our production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine. And it goes without saying just how much we appreciate our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And if you happen to be in Portland, Oregon next weekend, you won't want to miss the Cannabis Science Conference. It's actually one of the most comprehensive scientific conferences in the cannabis industry at this time. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day.